Welcome back to the Wild Plant Culture Podcast, where we discuss the relationships between human and plant communities, traditional and contemporary. This episode is with Dr. Daniela Shevitz, an awesomely engaged and inspiring young professor at Keene University in New Jersey. Daniela is a plant ecologist who researches the effects of land management on culturally significant plant species and ecosystems. She is inspired by traditions that have lasted for millennia based on traditional management through anthropogenic fire and selective harvesting. I love the way Daniela braids together ethnobotany, ecology, anthropology, and restoration. In this conversation, we talk about Daniela's research with Robin Kimmerer on sweetgrass, about traditional land management and traditional ecological knowledge in the Northeast and in Costa Rica, about monocrop agriculture and alternatives found in traditional cultures, and about urban people finding nature connection. Dear listener, partway into the interview, the wind really picks up and there's some noisy moments. I hope you don't find it too distracting. I've been enjoying doing these interviews outdoors, but I will switch to indoors in the future. This podcast is brought to you by Wild Ridge Plants. We started Wild Ridge to offer a toolkit for the restoration of native plant communities, including a native plant nursery, botanical surveys and stewardship planning, as well as classes, hikes, presentations, and publications. Check us out online at wildridgeplants.com. Thanks for all the feedback, questions, and comments, and for the iTunes ratings, too. Please keep it coming and give me a holler at jared at wildridgeplants.com. This podcast is also a platform for me to play some music I've written over the years. This episode features a new piece on solo acoustic guitar called Moth Wings. I find it fairly melancholy and wasn't sure about including it, but the temperatures are dropping, the days are darkening, and it just seemed to fit. I think Danielle's energy and enthusiasm will more than make up for a twinge of quiet sadness in the music. Do you take your kids out, not your kids, your school kids? Do you take your students <laughs> out on field trips often? Or? I do. So I believe that the best way to teach is to immerse them in different environments. Um, and so most of my classes for juniors and seniors are all, all uh, field trip based courses. Wow. So every Friday for Conservation Bio, for example, we go to random places throughout New Jersey where people are really practicing conservation and so they learn from both the practitioners and from me and from the land itself. Um, and then in field biology and other ecosystem-based courses, we usually get them out into those systems. Where are some of the places that you guys are going this year? Like what kind of habitats are you looking at? Or Oh, we look all throughout New Jersey. So my goal is to expose them to the different regions. So we go, we do Stoke State Forest and the Delaware Water Gap. Um, and we already did some restoration with the Littoral Society down in Belmar um, and with the Maritime Forests. We explored Wachung Reservation, going to the Pine Barrens with Emil DeVito. And the oh, sweet. Nature, That's going to be a good time. It, it's always a great time. He puts on this alternative persona. Um, very cute. He pretends he's straight from Italy. Uh-huh. Um, he uses a thick accent. Uh, yeah, we go every, and we do a lot of local work here as well. So in the county parks, and we visit Morris County Parks and learn about the fire restoration that they're doing. Um, yeah, so it's experience-based learning is the best. Do you have students who 
this is sort of their first time really getting out into nature, or I has do. that bridge already been formed for you people? Know, I'm always surprised how some people always look at hiking or exploring as something that other people do and they will never be, do it. Uh-huh. Um, even if they're majoring in environmental science, which just blows my mind. So we, we're just in a very urban area of New Jersey where you just very rarely get off the concrete. Yeah. Um, and so uh, it is very funny to see some of my students um, explore the woods for the first time. Uh, a lot of them are deathly afraid of insects, right, or snakes. And so um, I guess making sure that they realize that they're going to be okay um, is, is a big part of my job, which is a surprising element. So what does that process look like on a student-by-student student basis? Like. Do you see kids transitioning from mm. this is really an alien world to some sense of familiarity? Oh, totally. We had this one student, um, one of my favorite students ever, which I know I probably shouldn't have favorites, but of course I do. But don't worry, nobody's going to hear this or anything. <laughs> uh, Angela, so Angela was a great student of mine. She, um, she was always an A student. She was a book learner, and then she, uh, she would ace all the tests, but then when we would go out for ecology, she'd have little fans all over her to try to keep the mosquitoes away, <laughs> like literally pinned to her. And she was afraid of all insects. And then she wound up becoming so obsessed with the natural environment and she wound up going to Costa Rica with me um, and became, what, she was there for six, seven weeks, fully immersed and loved every moment. And of course got her bug bites, but she became completely in love with being in the forest and she was from Elizabeth so very different environment so what what like flicked the switch for her how did that transition happen I don't know how why it happens for some people and why it doesn't happen for others I feel like um, you know I I try to expose all my students to uh, different types of environments and talk to them about how they're connected even if they don't realize that they are and some students really get it and they kind of identify with that um, and they feel a part of it and I, I don't know what that trigger is for some but some really follow it through for the rest of their lives. Do you think it means the same thing for your students like that idea of being a part of nature or is that a completely different experience for every different human being like because we often talk about that like mm-hmm. building bridges to the natural world mm-hmm. or helping people feel like they belong and ecology mm-hmm. is this big web and so on but is that are we working towards the same endpoint for everybody where everybody's going to be in xyz in nature or okay. are you seeing that expressed in a lot of different ways yeah it is amazing how many how different every single person is right and how um, what works for some people and connects them doesn't work for other people and I, I respect that because we're so complex as individuals and I think that we all have our own histories that make us who we are. Um, I love when people go against what they thought, the track that they thought uh-huh. they were always going to. I, I'm very different in that way. I, um, I started off on one path and I've never deviated from it. Just a little bit, but not really. And so I'm always very inspired by people who do deviate and find their way to the environment later um, and kind of understand that they were open to it. And I don't know what it is that made those individuals open where, as others might be like, yeah, that's pretty cool, but I have no desire to ever go for a hike again or no desire to go into this as a field of study. So So what age were you when you just sort of found this groove you were going to lock into? Um, I was in seventh grade. So I, uh, I went through a lot of bullying in seventh grade, a lot of, I, I was 
I was a victim of a lot of middle school drama for girls and so my family noticed that right away and kind of took me on trips to the southwest and we always went to Cape Cod every summer growing up with family and so I think seeing you know the importance of the environment in those two areas in the southwest and Cape Cod um, became the part of my life that I could control and so I uh, it made me different from all the other girls, and I think that that was an important thing that I needed to do was to find my own to stick my own way. And then I just found myself exploring my own backyard. So I lived in New York and would go to Harriman State Park and go hiking on my own or with my family. And my family was terrific during this time because um, they recognized that it was such a point in my life where they needed to be there for me as a support system. And so we, uh, yeah, so seventh grade I wrote a a report in my technology class they asked what we want to do with our lives when we grow up and uh -huh. I wrote I wanted to be a biology professor and oh. basically stuck with that <laughs> that is unusual it's crazy I know unusual. yeah so did you you're in seventh grade you're in eighth grade you're discovering this world that is sort of yours. Did you wear that on your sleeve in any way? Like, did that become Oh yeah, persona? for sure, it was my like, identity, always, like, yeah. how did you let people know? Were you wearing Southwestern jewelry? Yes, I was wear... always rocking the turquoise, yeah. Sweet, sweet. <laughs> I always, uh, good luck. I know, I, I love the turquoise. Um, yeah, I, I definitely wore it everywhere. So I became known as like the tree hugger friend of everybody's eventually. So once I got back into my, my girlfriend group, um, we all kind of found, you know, I, I was the one picking up litter. I actually took after my mother. So my mother was on the weekends always picking up litter off of Hungry Hollow Road where I grew up. Um, she would kind of go <laughs> dress in her crazy clothes and just be like, I'm just, I don't, you know, I'll be disappearing for a few hours. And then during those years, I was somewhat embarrassed and somewhat inspired, uh -huh. right? So yeah. as a middle school person should be. And um, and now I'm that crazy mother who's always out picking up uh -huh. garbage, can't go for a walk without picking up garbage. Yeah, so, uh, but my kids, my, my friends saw that in me as well. And in we had a whole bunch of clubs that were started in school that was like save the environment, save the animals. And yeah, so I became that. Did you go Speak through a phase, or yeah, I don't want to presume that the phase is over or whatever, but <laughs> where you were like really righteous or really angry or really no? Or did, how did you integrate like it's a great this question. whole world of problems that you probably also were becoming aware of, not yeah. just the litter on the side of Hungry Hollow Road? But. Right. Yeah. No. Um, that's a really good. I I inherently am always angry at the people who throw litter on the ground, but I also understand um, that because I grew up in such an urban type of environment or suburban that um, it was everybody I know, right? So if I wasted my time being angry, I'd be angry uh -huh. at absolutely everybody and alienated by them. So I, um, I instead try to understand, you know, how to get them to not litter as opposed to trying to figure out, you know, trying to be mad. Um, I mean, it's so easy to be mad. It's so easy to be mad at all humanity right now. But I think the most important thing is trying to find the goodness and try to figure out how to clean up what is happening and make it stop. So that it's a hard balance, but I don't find myself, uh, you know, I, I of course do the protests and I of course do the, you know, rants every once in a while. But for the most part, that's just too draining of whatever energy I do have. So, yep. So 
one of my favorite, well, my favorite book ever written about plants mm -hmm. is Braiding Sweetgrass yes. by Robin Kimmerer. And um, you were really involved in sweetgrass. I was. And you were involved in that research. Yeah. Can you tell me about it? Tell me about sweetgrass and tell me about your involvement in researching it. Actually, I, can I start earlier than that? Please. Okay, yeah. so. Um, There's about 10 different questions that I want to ask you right now about Hungry Hollow Road and <laughs> okay, about growing we'll, we'll up and about seagrass and everything. So weave in whatever you like. I'll start. A, so after, um, during high school, I was a senior in high school. And because I had this reputation of being the environmentalist um, that everybody knew, there was only one of me, they, um, they, there was a college fair at our community college and there was a table set up by the SUNY College of Environmental Science and Forestry. And so I remember one of my friends came running over to me and said, oh, I found your college, I found your college. Um, and I had never really heard of ESF before, uh -huh. but um, I, I was super excited to talk to the person there. I think I was probably the only person that talked to the representative uh -huh. there. And, uh, and immediately I applied early um, when I was in a high school, high school senior. Um, and I got in, which was really nice, because I think at the time there were only 80 freshmen or so that were accepted. It was mostly a transfer institution. And um, when I first went to ESF, I thought I was going to be a wildlife biologist. Um, and so I went in and took, in freshman year, botany. Uh, you had to take botany and zoology as your bio one and two. I'm sorry. And, uh, <laughs> and of course, I think botany came first, and I, and Robin Kimmerer was my professor. Um, and I think it probably took about a week before I realized, oh no, I'm not going to be a wildlife biologist. I'm going to wow. be a plant biologist. So I was very inspired from her by her right off the bat. Um, she at the time, I think I, I don't know if she was tenure track, but she was very young in her. She was an assistant professor, um, so she she was very young in her career, and. Um, and she was very hard. She was a very difficult teacher. I remember she had very high expectations for us as freshmen. So I worked my butt off to try to prove myself to her. Um, and we got close that freshman year. I remember kind of like uh, I wanted, I, I was a class president for my class and I wanted to do a camping trip and she agreed to chaperone our camping trip, which was really nice. So um, I worked with her a lot on that and a few other things and just fell in love with ethnobotany and traditional knowledge um, because there was one lab that she did that was on a, a understanding the importance of traditional knowledge in um, agriculture and she we went to our field station and where she had planted corn, beans and squash together uh -huh. and the three separate and so we understood that you know, when these three sisters or these three plants are planted together, they actually increase the yield of each other um, and benefit each other tremendously. And so um, that left a huge impression on me. And I think that experience plus spending time with her and also her lessons on traditional knowledge and how important it is to weave into Western knowledge of science, that from freshman year kind of defined the rest of my career. Um, so then we spent a lot of time together through those four years and then I actually graduated a semester early. So I graduated after three and a half years and spent the last semester working for her fully developing a course in ethnobotany. Um, so she, I basically 
um, just worked full time on this course with her, writing, com coming up with the research and the lectures, and that was a huge, great experience for me as an undergrad to do. But I was done, and it also gave me something to do to kind of stay there um, without having to pay for tuition, <laughs> which was always nice. And then, um, and then I left for a bit. So I went to Cape Cod, which I'd love to talk about at some point. So that was yeah. a wonderful year of my life. Um, and I had been in touch with Robin the whole time, and I said, I'd really like to come back and work for my master's with you. And I remember Robin saying, I really think you should go somewhere else because we've worked together so closely, I'd like for you to experience something else. Um, and I said, no, I don't think so. I think I'd do that for my PhD, <laughs> but I'd like to come back and work for you uh -huh. for my master's. So uh, she said, okay, fine. So um, at that point, she had a USDA grant um, fund for rural America that looked at the restoration and I don't remember if it was specifically supposed to be I think it was just a few plants that were very important traditionally um, and so I did come back after my year in Cape Cod and moved back to Syracuse and um, we had there was a woman who I drove by on my way home from school one day and her name was Teresa Burns and she was um, she's a, a Mohawk woman she had been taking grass out of her out of her trunk. Um, she had collected a massive amount of sweetgrass. And so I think I had already started speaking to Robin a little bit about sweetgrass. And when I saw this in my own neighborhood in Syracuse, I was totally flabbergasted. So I pulled over and I said, oh my goodness, is that sweetgrass? Uh -huh. um, and she said, absolutely. And we spent the next few years becoming very close as friends and um, and that was really the start of my my master's was on looking at uh, we talked about what was happening to sweetgrass populations. Teresa and others were very worried that it was declining in traditional gathering sites, uh, and that there were places where they used to go to gather sweetgrass um, for their baskets, and it, they were no longer finding it in mass quantities either because of forest succession or because of overharvesting by commercial industry um, or because of, uh, you know, it was developed somehow. Yeah. So um, a lot of my work was working with the Mohawks and the other um, nations of the Haudenosaunee to try to um, understand what was happening to sweetgrass populations and also trying to figure out the ways to bring it back. So. Um, I worked on a Mohawk farm called Kanashohalege, which is close to Albany um, and in Kanajohari, and tried to find different ways to restore sweetgrass um, in both garden-sized plots and also over a larger area. So I worked, Teresa worked with me a lot on this, um, trying to grow sweetgrass in areas with weeding or with cover crops, yeah. different cover crops, or even just So yeah, throughout the, the throughout my time as my master's student, I was working very closely with Teresa and with Robin um, and with many others to try to understand what was happening with sweetgrass and how to restore it. And it was an amazingly powerful experience. I think another powerful experience of it was while Robin was such a big force of my who, who I was at that time, she also went on a sabbatical um, for a long time while I was going for my master's. And so she gave me the freedom and the power to work on my master's by myself. So I think the first year 
we were meeting very regularly, probably once a week or every other week to kind of get updates and ideas. And then she's like, okay, you're on your own basically. Um, and so she was in Oregon and I was a free, you know, 20 something year old with USDA funding to go explore sweetgrass ha uh, habitat. And it was very, very, very uh, pivotal for me to have that trust and to have that curiosity and to have the connections that helped me to do that. And sweetgrass populations ended up being correlated with where people who were harvesting them had lived or still were living? Yeah, so that's a great point. So, And that's something that actually Robin mentions in her book. Um, one of the most awesome findings about that work was that sweetgrass, um, of course, was declining in areas where there was a lot of development, right? right? So what I did was I looked at, um, I, I used a few different sources of information to try to find out where sweetgrass was. So some were herbarium specimens. So I went to the major herbaria in the Northeast, um, from Harvard to the Botanical Gardens, Albany, um, and I went through all records of Heracloia dorata. Um, and tried to find those that were in enough detail for me to find those exact locations. Um, and some had data back to a very long time ago and some were relatively recent. Um, and I revisited all of those places that were in enough detail wow. for me to find. And at that, you know, what was so awesome about working with sweetgrass is the smell is just so distinct and so powerful. Um, and I, my nose was so well trained, so I would just roll down the window and like drive slowly and see if I could you know, smell it um, and pull over as soon as I did. Um, and so that was one way. Another way was by interviewing uh, people who were basket makers or, or sweetgrass harvesters and trying to find out what, where they were um, finding it and where they weren't able to find it anymore. Um, and so basically what I did was put together all of this information and visited as many sites as I could. And really what we did find was this amazing correlation to the sites that had been traditionally managed. Um, and traditional management was through a few different things. It was through some um, light fire. So it used to be managed through um, anthropogenic burning. Um, and that didn't seem to happen as much anymore, um, but the sweetgrass was still holding on in those areas. Um, another thing was that there's a very big difference between how basket makers will harvest their sweetgrass. They use scissors. And really, everybody said if you just want to save the sweetgrass, you just have to make sure that the commercial harvesters are using scissors because the problem is that uh, they would pull it up from its rhizome and then by doing so, yeah. it's really eliminating the population there. So, um, And they did so in a way that they wouldn't, um, the, the Native Americans who would gather weren't having a huge impact, and I shouldn't say weren't, they still are not having an impact on that area um, tremendously because they're able to go back to it time after time. So they were, they knew, you know, we can't take too much of the population because clearly it needs to recover. So even though they were clipping, um, they wouldn't clip everything. And so uh, this is still obviously a huge important part of their culture and it's still going on in uh, Aquasusne and um, all throughout the uh, upstate New York and it's just a beautiful tradition um, and it's just a beautiful connection to the land and I think that you know my little part of it was just to make sure that um, I could see why you know how it was so powerful and also to help however I can in trying to bring back its population. 
Um, and on that farm, on Ganachohalege, we restored an acre of it using cover crops. Uh, and they were very excited about it because they were able to continue to use that sweetgrass for baskets. And um, there's actually a Mohawk uh, craft store there. And a lot of the baskets that they sell are made from sweetgrass that's in the area. And so this kind of brought the sweetgrass to them in, kind of in their backyard. So one of the other experiments that's mentioned in Robin's book, I won't go into the experiment itself, but the upshot was that stands that were harvested from experimental stands actually did better than those that were yeah. uh, left alone. And it kind of flies in the face of so much of what we think of environmentally or ecologically that, you know, humans are sort of this negative force mm -hmm. in the natural world and that if we could just partition off and, you know, put boundaries on the natural world in a variety of ways that everything would be thriving and abundant. But this is this, this little whisper of something else that I find so intriguing. Mm -hmm. And I want to ask you like five different questions about it, but if I can glom them all into one question. one. This isn't really domestication, right? This isn't right. what we call domestication. So in that case, what do we call it? Mm -hmm. And then the other part of the question is, are there other plant species that you're aware of that are like sweetgrass in this way where some aspect of human involvement is actually beneficial for the species? Sure. And. I know sometimes we call it like some people will call it agroforestry and some people will call it management and I feel like it's this whole other life way that probably is typical of a lot of human cultures but has just like fallen into we don't coming from such a strongly agricultural culture we don't even really have a framework for talking about some of these things. So how have you talked about it? What kind of words do you like and not like around it? And have you found other examples that are whispers or intriguing or that even have experiments around them mm. that are sort of like sweetgrass in this regard? Um, great question. So I, my fallback is traditional management. Um, and I think it's because people won't be like, what is that, right? Mm -hmm. So it's clear that there is an active management practice that's happening. Um, and traditional land management or traditional plant management really does kind of show that um, humans are involved in maintaining these populations or even growing the populations. Um, and it could include anthropogenic burning and it could also include selective harvesting, which is very foundational for a lot of um, traditions. And yes, sweetgrass is one example, but there's so many more. I mean, Kat Anderson explored the entire um, sustain, or traditional management of all basketry plants and all, a lot of plants in general yeah. in California. Um, and that's still going on now. Um, Frank Lake is doing some terrific work with that as well. Um, my dissertation, my PhD, was in Washington State with beargrass, which is another basketry plant that, um, that also seemed to uh, I don't know if it thrived or if it just recovered quickly after being sustainably harvested from. Um, and so what's amazing is to see that there really is this connection where people are able to get what they need from 
the plant and oftentimes it benefits the plants tremendously whether it's through pruning or it's like pruning or just har harvesting parts um, uh, there's a lot of tubers that will do that too camas for example um, is an important root crop that feeds a lot of the Pacific Northwest people and um, by selectively harvesting a few of the bulbs you'll be the tubers you'll be able to really kind of trigger others to grow um, I think it's a really important thing to understand that people throughout the past thousands and thousands of years have been doing this um, in order to survive, but also in order to increase the populations of the plants that they relied upon. And so entire landscapes have been transformed throughout the world, not just in North America, but throughout the world based on this, I'll say, traditional management. Um, and I think it's a beautiful connection that people have had to their environment, and I think that it shows that we are capable of being part of the environment. We don't have to dominate it the way that we've become so comfortable doing. And um, and it's it's really devastating when you think of the effects that we've had. When in reality, um, humanity would not survive if we had um, this same mentality of domination throughout all of history. And instead, when you look back, you could see that cultures were really subsistence. Um, existing because they were also allowing those environments to continue to thrive and those plants that they need to continue to thrive. So how does that make you feel about agriculture then? Ooh, that's a great question. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I have a lot of strong feelings about agriculture. Sure so clearly, you know, thousands of acres of one of a monocrop system is incredibly destructive. Um, but I am inspired by a lot of the amazing techniques that not only have been used traditionally, but also that are being used now. Yeah. Um, I mean, so inspired by aquaponics and hydroponics and rooftop gardening and bringing the farms to the urban centers, um, making sure that people are connected to their food no matter where they live. I think it's really awesome to see how people are becoming more creative about how they grow their food um, and bringing it to the people um, and making sure that the techniques are evolving and that the knowledge is evolving. And I just, I think, you know, I understand that we have an enormous burden of what is currently 7.5 or 7.6 billion people on our planet that need to be fed. Um, and I just can't think that monoculture is the way to do it, um, or a meat-based diet is a way to do it, or, yeah. you know, all that. I think that there's, there, there is a, a major revolution that I want to believe is happening now that really kind of looks at the alternative ways of growing food that will be less burdensome for the planet um, and more productive and more empowering to the people. One of my favorite podcasts right now is the Regenerative, Agri Regenerative Agriculture mm. Podcast. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's, forgive me, Regenerative Agriculture Podcast, but in some ways it's very dry, mm. you know? Um, it's not like some of the other ones that I've listened to about, you know, very interesting, crazy personalities, although everybody is, uh, is interesting, <laughs> but 
it's just so amazing to me the depth to which people are reevaluating agriculture as a practice and bringing in ecological understandings about yes, building soil yep. and all this stuff that really kind of came down the pike in the last 20 or 30 years tops sure, for sure. and and integrating it and if people can run with that i think agriculture would look very different are there examples of traditional agriculture that you look to that you find are you know inspiring or exemplary that sure i mean i just go back to the whole polycropping in general yeah right um so polycropping or even just so put on your professor hat for a second okay, please. tell yeah. tell us you know what polycropping is sure. how it's different from a monoculture and and give me a couple examples okay um okay well um so polycropping is when you put more than one uh, crop together uh and I'll go back to the corn, beans, and squash just yeah. because it's the perfect example. So um, the Haudenosaunee, and uh, historically called the Iroquois, um, practice this, as do a lot of other cultures. And it's the idea of planting the corn, which is the support system. So it, it's a very strong and tall plant um, and provides a high caloric intake for the people that eat it. Um, with beans and the beans are nitrogen fixers and so they provide nitrogen to the soil um, and they also provide protein for the diet and so um, they also uh, the beans if you've had a garden in your backyard and you planted beans you see that they like to climb on things right whether it's the fence or whether it's uh, or just the climb on the ground and so the corn provides the support for the beans to climb um, and then they plant squash um, which is it spreads, right? So it spreads throughout the soil. And we once, we, I compost in my backyard and we once had a, um, we once had a, a squash that just took over. Our, we we, had, we didn't even plant it that year, yeah. but because we put the compost into our, our flower bed, there was a squash that just took over our entire backyard. Um, but what that does is that it also suppresses weeds, right? And so when you have the corn, the beans, and the squash together, they all complement each other um, and they all support each other. And um, and in fact, the yield is higher when you plant those three together when, than when you plant them alone. Now the issue is because you know we can't really expect the farmers on these major, major farms to have the corn, beans, and squash together because it's really hard to continue to harvest throughout you know, acres and acres and acres and you acres. You can't really do a mechanized harvest. Exactly. Maybe, uh... So it's much more intensive. Um, but it makes a lot of sense in smaller patches. Uh, and I think that if you could have these areas that are mo that are uh, polycropped together, um, it is key. And I don't, I just think there's something devastating about thousands of acres of farm in general, right? So making it smaller in scale and more, um, more intensive with the different crops, I think is key. As are things, I mean, um, agroforestry is a great field to go into. And you look at, with agroforestry, within, you could literally eat, it's all food trees, um, trees that are planted that are either for fruit or for and nuts, um, and also understories that include things like mushrooms, um, that are edible mushrooms, or you could have um, a lot of crops in the understory as well, berries um, that would naturally grow with under a forest cover. And I think that all of these are systems that are have great potential to feed people. Um, and not only 
help biodiversity as a whole, but also function ecologically. So you will find very little ecological function in a conventional farm field. But when you look at a forest that is um, used for agriculture, there's great ecological function happening within there. Uh, and in addition, we get our food. So it's also sequestering or holding on to a lot of carbon. It's also fixing you know, the soil, recycling nutrients. It's also providing habitat for birds and for other awesome critters out there. And we're not spraying everything we can on that. And I think that um, there's so much more potential when we start looking at those alternative systems. Um, there's a great group in uh, in Elizabeth called Groundwork Elizabeth. They're a nonprofit organization, and I do have done a lot of work with them over the past ten years. Um, in one year, we um, there was a farm at my university, uh, at Kane University, and my students. Uh, as part of their senior capstone, did an amazing regenerative agriculture program with them. So we um, we came up with a, uh, a cover crop plan, a soil conservation plan, a water conservation plan, um, a education plan, a medicinal garden aspect, um, and uh, really kind of work. And and also um, we looked at the agroforestry as a or as a sort of area of it, and we. Um, and we put it together, and actually, I think that was published in a in a journal for um, innovative sustainable sustainability education or something nice. like that. Um, and it really was the start of what um, what Groundwork Elizabeth has been dedicated to over the past few years. They were they received a grant from the state doing uh, um, it's called more peas, more permaculture education and agriculture or something. I'm sorry, Groundwork Elizabeth, for not getting the acronym right. Um, and they bring in, um, it, and they've brought a lot of these techniques to the urban areas, to Elizabeth, to um, to Union and Hillside, and all the areas where people were not having um, access to food. And um, and they really did bring in a lot of that polycropping, those concepts into the um, into the communities. And now. One of their amazing initiatives is to try to put in raised bed gardens in every school in Union County, and they are well on their way. So they've done, I, I'm going to say hundreds um, of gardens already, and uh, work with the students and the teachers and make sure that they know that it's there. Probably not hundreds, that might be an overestimate, but they're really out there every, every weekend day, um, and every weekday actually a lot in the summertime and in the spring. Um, with the students. In addition, they have, um, they also are going to be doing a lot of those in um, the senior citizen complex, uh, places where senior citizens are, reside, in places in hospitals. Um, they really want to try to bring a lot of the farms, the, the raised bed gardens to them. So it's kind of exciting. That's such a different picture of what an urban area can be. Right? I'm, yeah. I wasn't gonna go there, but I think I wanna chase that down a little bit with you. I, I grew up a city kid. Okay. And I had you know, basically no nature connection until I was 30 years old, you know, plus or minus. Yep, yep. Not yep. to say my family didn't take me upstate and we didn't go cool places, but I didn't have that bridge, you know? It's like in school, you learn about cheetahs and the elephants and stuff, and wow, that's so awesome, right. but what are you gonna do about so that? Far away. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's not really relevant. 
and now now I live really rural and I kind of turned into this real hick and it's it's funny like I say hello to everybody when I walk by them on the street and sometimes people are just like what and I would have never done that because you know I went to high school on a subway um, and you know I often hear that the future of the human world is urban Mm. that you know more and more people are moving to urban areas and that this is supposed to be environmentally beneficial because urban areas like everybody's shoved in the same filing cabinet so it has less footprint or something right, like that right. and I just think yes but no because in an urban area of my upbringing I didn't really have an opportunity to connect with the planet that I grew up on and not to be obnoxious about it, but you know, right. once I took somebody on a walk or was volunteering at the end of the walk, they're like, wow, I feel like I, I've just been an alien on my planet my whole life and I'm just getting this glimmer. And I was like, yeah, yeah, because I mean, growing up in the city was awesome. Right. But it was not nature connection. Right. It was awesome people connection. So I guess what I'm getting at with yeah. this long picture here is when I hear that the human future is increasingly urban, it's heartbreaking to me, even though I appreciate some aspects of what cities are because I've had the good fortune to experience both mm -hmm. and I wouldn't trade in the walking out my door picking some fresh wild fruits hearing the birds and having that opportunity to be I don't want to say connection it's more like the excitement because there's always something different going on and there's always something sort of like tickling the edge of my perception there's no right angles or stop signs or red lights or whatever it's a very free environment to me and the city was free too in a different way and so I get that but I, I would want that for people so here's my big bundle of questions and you can pick whichever okay. one you like one, and I wanted to ask this of all my guests, but I haven't asked anybody yet. What do you think a healthy rural economy looks like? Mm. I feel like this is such a challenge for right now, right? Because we have all these extractive economies. Some of them are going belly up and we're like, what do we do with the coal miners? They should become computer programmers. And it's like, right. that's a really different fucking skill set. <laughs> like, what do you think? I mean, you know, come on. For sure. And then again, you've got a lot of people in the city who are really disconnected. You have people everywhere who are radically disconnected. And then there's this prognosis that we're going to be even more urbanized, we're going to be even more disconnected, and that's supposed to benefit nature. You know, that we're walled off in our filing cabinet in the city, and that maybe we'll use up or develop less wildland. And sure, I see the problem of the suburbs, but I feel like all these directions, none of them, none of them are hearing that whisper that the sweetgrass is saying, which is that there's a way for people to be in the natural world and not just to be bad actors. That's beautiful. Um, that's a beautiful connection. And I grapple with this a lot. So I grew up in suburbia. Um, and I watched, I actually took my sons to, last, last week I was celebrating Rosh Hashanah with my mom, with my family. And I took my kids to my the community where I grew up. And I was like, this is the first part, this is the first forest I saw get knocked down. And this had a big, big effect on me um, because I remember when those homes went in just being so sad to see that those homes replaced that forest. Um, and I think that what you're saying has a few different 
it resonates with me a few different ways. I think people who grow up in the city are starving. Um, they're starving for fresh air. They're starving for their connection with nature. And I think that could go one of two ways. I think it means that they could become walled off um, and they will just always expect to live in a concrete jungle and um, not, and they will convince themselves that they don't need to be connected. Or I think it makes them appreciate it a lot more when they do get that. And so I think that for me, that's what happened. Um, I was able to find that appreciation because I was, I had such positive experiences when I was able to escape to nature. And um, I think that for me, it turned me into someone who appreciated that. And now I'm raising my family in suburbia, right? In uh, the New York, New York metropolitan area. Yeah. Um, but on the weekends we escape. And I think there's a lot to be said about that. I don't mind that. I think that's a little bit about me. That's a little, it's an anom. I mean, I, I, I like being with people. I'm like inherently an extrovert. And I like being with my community. I love saying good morning to my neighbors when I first leave the house. I love saying good night when we're going in, right? I just, we know everyone on our street um, and that's how I grew up as well. And I think there's a great connection that happens there. That said, suburbia has awful environmental impacts and I acknowledge that. And, um, and living in an urban complex like New York City would be much more sustainable, but I can't do it. I find myself trapped there. So um, I think the future is going to have to integrate the dis different systems more. I think that in addition to food, people in the cities are going to continue to be starving and um, thirsty for nature. And I think that that's why Central Park is as packed as it is on the weekends. Um, and I think that's okay. Or even during lunch hour, or even yeah. in the middle, I shouldn't even say the weekends, all throughout all the week. Time, yeah. um, I think that it's, it's, it's good to have these urban parks and to have these so, I mean, we're here in Wachung Reservation, which is a 2,000 acre oasis in the middle of, you know, a very urbanized county. And I think that there's a lot to be said about the fact that it's so um, spread out, but also so used. A lot of people come here for different things. I think people are trying to connect. Um, and I think these pockets play a huge role in that. Now, ecologically, you know, they're very important as well. They will absorb storm water. They will provide habitat for whatever species do remain in them. But to be honest, I mean, it's obviously better to just keep, you know, the, the areas as large as they can be, even if it means outside of the city. But culturally, I think that we can't afford to do that. We can't afford to lose that connection. And so I don't know. It, it makes me very scared to see those forests continue to be chopped down to put in housing developments. Um, I think high density living is, um, everybody is always very opposed to high density living in their areas and I understand that because nobody wants more traffic, nobody wants more, um, less, you know, less of their own town to themselves. But we have so many people and we are in the New York metropolitan area and I think they have to go somewhere. Um, Manhattan is only so big and it keeps growing up, 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 up and eventually, you know, it's it's gonna outgrow itself. It, it is, it's, it's already outgrown itself and this is happening to cities all over the world. I think that we are dealing with a time when our population is still exploding. We're still, you know, exponentially increasing. 
Um, and it, it, it freaks me out. I think that it should freak people out. And I think that at the same time, it should also um, hopefully trigger people to try to develop ways to um, somehow limit our environmental impact and limit the, the spread. And um, as for rural America, uh, yeah, I think that I understand why people connect with rural America. Um, I, for one, I, I love it. I love waking up. It, I mean, whenever I can, we escape to somewhere, and I, I think that there's a lot to be said about it. You know, waking up and hearing the babbling brooks, and you know, being surrounded by the wind in the trees, and having that as your neighbors. Um, I don't. I don't. I don't know. I think that the jobs there are shifting. I think the economy is tremendously different now than it was. I, there are tons of rural towns that are not at all thriving. A lot of the young kids are moving out towards the cities. And I think ecologically, what it looks like in my ideal would be the wind farms, would be the areas where people are developing those. Um, uh, and I don't want to say solar farms because I don't know that those are the answers as much as putting the solar on roofs in already built areas. But I think if we could save what is there and make sure that we are providing jobs to people in the form of somehow less destructive technologies and less destructive jobs, um, I would love to see it shift. I just, it's just, I don't know, what do you think, Jared? What do you see as the future of rural America? You know, I think rural America's really been destroyed by the fact that rural areas have just been a focus for extraction. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, if somebody's like, oh, you know, I'm growing up in this rural town and it's really boring, I don't think it's just because rural life is boring. Because I, well, let me not tangent off quite yet, but I think that rural lifeways and rural culture have been so much in the crosshairs for, you know, let's just say the last 500 years, but it's a long process, that anything that can be extracted has been, including, you know, people have really been parasitized. I mean, even just look at what happened to rural family farms. People wanted to live on rural family farms, but through all kinds of shady, government and corporate manipulation and loan programs and saying that you know farms needed to expand and all this kind of stuff a lot of people have just been put out of family farming for the last hundred years and of course your community is going to be boring and depressing if the only thing that you got is a Walmart that's a 15 mile drive away and then a bunch of large corporate monoculture farms and I, I think you can't disentangle it from the sort of extract every last drop of resource orientation of our economy. So there's an economic thing there, and I'm not going to get prescriptive about how that ought to shift or whatever, but I don't think that there's anything inherently boring about living in a rural community if it's a robust, healthy community living with a lot of abundance. You know, I'd love to walk down the road to my neighbor who's like, you know, got a bunch of excited, energized young people 
who are sticking around and they're mu making music and they're having dances yeah. and they're you know writing and documenting their life or whatever and they're farmers and you sort of see that in New Jersey I mean I'd say like oh, yeah. a half of our friends are young organic farmers yeah. who are totally coming at it from you know dare I say sort of like a radical cultural perspective and then they're like this is what I'm gonna do so if I see some promise for rural areas, it's that. It's these, all these young people. I feel like every other young person I meet is like, I want to be a farmer. And <laughs> what a weird shift that is. But it's like, right. yeah. And I don't think that when they say I want to be a farmer, it is more of that sustainable agriculture as Definitely. opposed to, yeah. you know, um, they're talking Monsanto about mycorrhizal fungi right, exactly. and cover cropping exactly. and polycultures and all that. So I think there's something there, but we're going to have to tone down the extractive pressure on those people and tone down the way that subsidies really favor a different kind of farming if those young radicalized farmers are going to have a chance. And if you look at what has happened to young radicalized or self-sustaining farming over the past, again, 500-year arc or something in the Americas, that is a shit show. You know, that is a sad picture. And so, oh yeah. yes, hopefully. You know. Yeah, there is a lot of hope. I do, and, and that's where I actually, I deviate from a lot of people um, who are just the pure environmentalists in the sense that I do feel hope, right? And I think that there are people who understand that if they are going to be living in rural America, they, um, they have a mentality that is more connected to not just extracting, 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 but also living off of the land as opposed to, you know, raping it for everything it's worth. And I think that that's, hopefully, again, I there's that appreciation that comes along with it that um, even if people are living in urban areas that they could connect to that. I mean, farmer's markets are huge, yeah. right? And farmer's markets are popping up all over New Jersey, but also yeah. all over the country. Um, and it brings value to the people who do um, connect with the land out, right at, outside of their, um, outside of the urban centers. And so I just, I think it's, I, I think it's a scary time ecologically, but it's also a hopeful one in many, many, many respects. Um, I find that my own emotions sway tremendously between hope and despair very often. Um, especially here in New Jersey. Yeah, yeah, this is a good place to, <laughs> yeah, to feel both that. acutely within the space of 10 minutes. I'm looking at what the wind is doing to the sound waves on here <laughs> on the uh, thing, and I'm wishing I had opted in for some kind of major windscreen. I'm just going to hope for the best here, but I may fiddle around with the microphones for a second and try to get them a little bit out of the direction here and tone this down a sec. So forgive me, audience be right back with Daniela Shevitz. So something took you to Costa Rica. Yeah. And oh. I don't know what it was because I didn't read those papers. Okay, so no fill problem. me in. So um, I was in uh, college and I studied abroad in Costa Rica um, for, I think I only did a summer semester and I just fell in love with the culture there. Um, and then in 2010, I had a colleague who uh, came to, he joined me at Kane, um, and he was from, again, the Pacific Northwest. So I moved to New Jersey from Seattle. I was at, in, 
Washington State, and he was from uh, the Olympic Peninsula, and he joined my department, and he had been going to Costa Rica. So um, we applied for uh, NSF grant. He had a, an NSF grant where he was, um, and then we applied for one here, and it was a research, research experiences for undergraduates grant. Um, which we were very fortunate to get and then we got again. Um, and so I spent a number of years leading some uh, student groups through Costa Rica. Um, but what was very awesome about it is that we stayed in the same place um, for six weeks and six weeks of summer. And it was awesome because most people when they go to Costa Rica will stay at any one place for maybe two, three days and then go on to somewhere else in two, three days and somewhere else, two, three days, you know, and I think there's a lot to be said about that because when you're on vacation, you want to see as much as you can. Right. Um, sure. But we really did get to know the community well. And um, this is a very rural area at the border of Nicaragua. So 15 kilometers south of Nicaragua in a very small town called Boca Tapada. And um, we just connected with the people and connected with the land there. Um, it's a mixture of primary forests, which are really beautiful old growth forests, but also secondary forests that are recovering from agricultural use. And I think my fascination is looking with, there were a lot, there was one man in particular, actually, um, Israel Mena, and he really uses the forest there for his medicinal plants and he's a healer. Um, and he kept me coming back year after year uh, because his story was phenomenal, his knowledge is absolutely insane so this man um, grew, he's Nicaraguan by birth uh, and his mother was a very very powerful herbalist who was very well respected and um, when things got very unsafe in Nicaragua she actually had him swim across the Rio San Carlos a crocodile infested river basically and swam he swam to Costa Rica settled there and this town is a mixture of Nicaraguans and Costa Ricans and um, he brought with him her knowledge but also really just this amazing inherent knowledge and Israel never learned how to read or write I think probably if he was you know born and raised in America he would have had or in the US I should say he would have had um, been diagnosed with you know uh, probably some some dys uh, dyslexia or something that um, could have been treated very early on, but he couldn't figure out his letters. Um, that said, he knew every single plant by its common name and its scientific name and its family. So uh, he worked with MBO, which is, was their equivalent of the Smithsonian. And um, he really, the scientists would tell them, tell him the Latin names of the plants. He knew all the common names and he knew where to find every single one and he inherently knew its ecology because he spent so much time in the in the forests um, and he worked on treating his own illnesses with um, with the plants and also treated the whole community and um, that's where I really fell in love with the important role that secondary forests play in um, in medicine and oftentimes in Costa Rica actually an amazing article just came out that showed that most of the tr most of the secondary forests are cut down only after 20 years they're not even given time to mature um, and for a country that's known to have you know this green eco world of embracing everything forested um, 
this loss of their secondary forest at 20 years old is devastating to the cultures and devastating to the ecology. And so I think um, my work there really focused on the pioneer trees, the trees that come in after a disturbance, and the role that those play both ecologically and also um, medicinally and culturally. Ooh, that's a big win. Look at this. That's like somebody just played a blast beat on this track. Dear listener, I hope that the wind is not too annoying to you and you'll stick with us here. We're just getting big gusts and all the shagbark hickory nuts are coming down here and the red oak acorns. And after we're done talking, I'm gonna do some foraging here because there's nothing like a lawn with great big specimen nut trees over it for uh, easy access. Perfect. So those second growth forests, that's sort of, um, I want to use the word feral. Mm. Does that make sense in that sure, context? Because totally. I think of that here, like all these, well, to back up just a second, if I'm doing botanical survey work and I want to find like the really high quality, diverse plant habitats where things are that aren't elsewhere, I'm going to look for habitats that don't have an agricultural legacy because of what happened with the soils and so on, or have a distant enough one that it can't be perceived in any of the kind of archival records that I have access to. But there's something about those successional habitats that also has the potential to be very rich, especially in food and medicine. And I see that more in places like Maine or upstate New York because I feel like our successional habitats in New Jersey are so encumbered by deer overbrows that has happened even from the very inception of their kind of rewilding. Um, and also just the, the incredible overburden of invasive species. Right. So it's not that I'm not excited if I see some, in fact, one of the ways I've been able to kind of reconcile with invasive species in some ways is if I can use something for food or medicine. Mm-hmm. Then I can have a little smile when I see an autumn olive. But when I see 50 acres that's completely dominated by autumn olive, there's no smile on my face. So a lot of our early successional habitats in New Jersey are really compromised by deer and invasive species. What do early successional young forest habitats look like in Costa Rica? What are the kind of post-agricultural dynamics there? And what would those forests become really great if they weren't chopped down after 20 years? Just paint me whatever picture you want about them. Yeah, so here's why I love the secondary forests in the tropics. Um, They are, so the rainforest soils are inherently nutrient poor, right? So there's very low nutrients in them because, well, it just rains all the time. So all of those nutrients usually get washed away um, or taken up very quickly. So uh, there's a lot of competition in the rainforest for the nutrients that are there. And that's what drives that great diversity that we see. But when you cut down the forests, and I shouldn't, I'm not a proponent of agriculture, you know, replacing forests, but I am a proponent of letting the forest recover once, you know, the agriculture has um, and if the agriculture was not too intense to compress the soils, to compact the soils um, so that species can come in, some of the very first plants that come in are the nitrogen fixers. And in particular, where we are, there's this amazing nitrogen fixer called Pentaclethra macroloba. Um, and Gavilana is the common name there. And it is an amazing uh, tree that just grows very quickly and fixes so much nitrogen. And it is an amazing part because it's not only in those secondary for the early stages but it stays through uh, when it when the forest is mature 
greatest, largest trees in the primary forest are going to be those same Pentaclethra. Um, and they are very powerful naturally as um, anti-fungicides and, um, it, well, antimicrobials in general. And so Israel, what he does is he, he scrapes off the bark um, and scrapes it into a palm leaf and will have that plant, the bark, that he uses in his boots. Um, he also uses the leaves in his boots because uh, in the rainforest you're always wearing rubber boots, right? And inevitably you're going to get some nasty foot uh -huh. fungus. <laughs> so he puts, uh, you know, the plant, um, the pentaclethra in those boots to try to keep from infection, which is kind of exciting. Um, and ecologically it plays a huge important part because it's bringing that nitrogen back to the soil and recovering those nutrients. And when you look at the secondary forest where we are, it's a huge component is pentaclethra of the of the understory and the overstory of those secondary forests. Um, there are some other really cool fast-growing trees. I'm obsessed with one called Bismia macrophylla. Um, big, big leaves, beautiful tree, and also medicinal. Um, same thing, antimicrobial. And I think that you could learn a lot about a plant's medicinal value by looking at its ecological roles. Um, and so by having this powerful influence on the forest soils, it's also likely to have a powerful influence for us as medicine. Um, and I think that there's, it's just exciting to kind of see what comes in after there. And, and where we are, there are an invasive species, and you're absolutely right um, that that is one of the major issues with you know secondary forests where we are, is that they just get overgrown. And oftentimes they get to a certain point and the invasive plants just limit succession from happening here. Yeah. Whereas um, where we have been in the tropics, that's not a concern. Um, hurricane Otto, which is the first hurricane that actually came from the Pacific to Costa Rica in this region ever, and it just happened a couple of years ago, um, it decimated that area and uh, completely knocked down a lot of our primary forests, but inevitably it's coming back. Um, now, granted, <laughs> Uh, it's scary to see how the climate is shifting in that area, but it's also inspiring to see how the environment is recovering. So you said something about how what a plant does medicinally might be maybe mirrored in its ecological role in some way. And I love that and I find it intriguing and I find that, you know, something like that really emplaces people into the ecology. Mm. Is that something that you've seen or perceived elsewhere? Is that something that uh, Israel would have expressed or what's, what would his ecological orientation or perspective or philosophy uh, be? So Israel was a, or is a very, he's very connected to ecological cues. Um, so yeah, so he would, he definitely says this tree will keep away um, uh, fungi and look, there are no fungi around it. Um, so that's why he kind of looks at it as a, as a fungi, you know, something that could be used to treat fungal infections. Um, but also what he's in tune with is amazing in the sense that, you know, when there's a full moon, this sap is going to be more plentiful. Um, and so he'll go to the baco tree and use the machete to get some of it only during certain parts you know times and i think that that same idea of that traditional knowledge that he has or even just local knowledge that he has um is 
it shows that he um, has experience when, with many, with going and trying many different times. Um, and he's learned from other people who have, you know, who have tried similar things. And I think that that oral transmission of knowledge that has come from trying to sustainably harvest parts of plants or resources is the same thing that we saw with, um, you know, the sweetgrass and same sort of thing that we see with um, indigenous cultures or local cultures throughout the world is that uh, the medicines or the resources that we need or use um, are very tightly linked to their own environment and we could learn a lot by just studying how they're interacting with everything from other species to the, you know, to the phases of the moon and to what's going on everywhere around them. I have a question that I want to ask you, but I've been trying to phrase it and rephrase it in my mind so that you get the spirit of what I'm trying to ask. I'm going to try to ask it, but I'm not sure that it will be clear. What I want to know is how does your experience of ecology affect you, let's say philosophically? Like, what when you think about either human society or culture or meaning, do you refer back to nature in some way and say, oh, well, you know, uh, the trees are like this, so maybe people are like this, or existence is like this because ecology has shaped my understanding of what reality is in some kind of fundamental way. Like, is there a way that ecology acts as a ground for you when you think about things other than succession or, yeah. you know, diversity or what have you. Or maybe it is about diversity yeah. and succession, but not in a natural context, but in some other realm of life. Oh, I love that. I could spend forever thinking about this. Um, I think my immediate answer is uh, I am, I, I love seeing species cooperate, right? Or even compete. And when they compete with each other, they actually you know, ultimately grow taller or bigger roots or, you know, they're trying to really kind of get the resources they need. I think people are very much linked to that in the sense that we we grow um, in a way that is influenced so much by our neighbors. Um, and I think that the, there's so many parallels that could be made, like the, you know, between um, both the symbiosis, it, that mutualism, and also the competition. And I think, you know, what is the, and making, deep, getting our own space and our own niche. And literally, I love that the word niche is part of the yeah. English language now. Um, I think that it really says a lot because we are, we are just another species, right? And as much as we try to think that we are the most important one and the most powerful one, which, you know, arguably we've made it, the world in the way that we are the most powerful one but I think that ultimately it comes down to the fact that we're just another species and our population will be limited just the same way that other species populations are limited um, by something that will allow us to reach our carrying capacity whether it's free wa fresh water whether it's um, food right and so we can't continue to grow exponentially and indefinitely um, and I think that that's happening throughout a lot of the world now uh, I also think that there's power in our diversity, just like there's power in the diversity of a lot of ecosystems. Um, and with that diversity comes resilience and diversity, meaning 
not only ethnic diversity or economic diversity, um, educational diversity, but I think it also comes in just every single person being an individual unto ourselves and recognizing that every individual plays a role and influences others. Um, so there's so many parallels that could be made and I think that it's a beautiful question. Um, but just like that, there are some systems like the salt marshes that are not as diverse, but still have enormous ecological function, right? And I think that that's powerful as well, in the sense that you have these systems that just have a few amazing species, Spartina, right? It has yeah. a few grasses that are hanging on and making this whole system function. And so there are places where really to act in unison and to kind of, they're with the same voice, kind of functioning as a nursery for the fish and a habitat for stormwater absorption and all that good stuff, filtering nutrients, they're powerful. So yeah, some systems, some people, some communities are forests where everybody is a tree unto itself and some are like the salt marshes where they have to act in unison and I think that that's a lot of humanity. I like that. I like what I'm kind of reading between the lines there without even necessarily spelling it all out. It's just a nice... It's nice to be able to have a framework outside of humanity to look at humanity through. My original area of study was anthropology, and I always felt like one of the cool things about anthropology was that it kind of put our own culture in the funhouse mirror because all of a sudden you see this completely other way that people could be. And I think that's true about the other beings around us also is that they allow us to re-see ourselves in a different yes. in a different frame and to and to maybe even so the piece that I really like is there's all these different ways in which communities can form in nature and there's probably a lot of different ways in which human communities can form and still be you know it's hard to say what a word like successful means but you know still thrive mm -hmm. in some way yeah yeah I love that Nakarima article that was oh my goodness, I remember that from when right? I was like 11 or 12 years old. Exactly, yep. I actually make my medicinal botany class read it. And inevitably, I'm so surprised that nobody has read it yet. And they're all like, oh, this culture sounds so like intense. And, and you know, they're putting I, your where, head in ovens. Like, where do you and, think they live? Yeah. You know? Nobody, nobody realizes that. That's good. Can you just explain <laughs> what that is for anybody who's listening who didn't have the good luck of reading sure. that in sixth grade or whatever? So you should all Google Nakarema. Um, and it's an essay that was written by, um, oh gosh, oh, we'll have uh, to fact check this. That so, I don't remember. <laughs> by an, an anthropologist. And it basically looks at this culture where they worship, um, you know, there's, a, there's a, oh gosh, now I have to remember all of it, but they are obsessed with basically these rites of passage. Um, they, uh, it talks about their medicines and uh, how they pay medicine men enormous fortunes even when they can't afford it to make them better even just you know um, to make them feel better mentally um, it talks about um, the uh, you know everything from tooth care to just grooming excessive and it sounds grooming. so weird it does sound it so sounds weird, right? so alien yeah. like the way it's framed the way it's i don't framed. remember that much about it but i remember the one it's like they put their heads in ovens right exactly <laughs> yeah and it goes on for a while talking about how exotic this culture is and then um ultimately you know you ask 
I ask the students where, you know, where these people are or if they could identify with anything. And people feel like it's such a boring concept and yet um, Nakarima is American or America, American spelled backwards, right? Yeah. So you realize it when you read it a second time that everything they're talking about is actually a reflection on Americans and um, how we are so obsessed with ourselves <laughs> and our outward appearance, our mental state. It's just a, it's a very uh, interesting perspective. It's pretty great. <laughs> so there's a lot of research coming out of the Amazon right now uh, that I'm finding really intriguing because there's a suggestion that a lot of the Amazon might be anthropogenic in some way, mm. right? So this like archetypal wild area of the planet um, may have a human genesis story mm. in some ways. And one, you know, I'm curious if that's something that either you saw inklings of in Costa Rica, if it's relevant there at all, if you have any feelings about it, and also. Do you think we'll find the same thing to be true of areas of North America that we've been treating as a sort of like this very untouched or virginal concept? No, oh, absolutely. I am so, um, I am so convinced that that that's the case. Uh, that people have been changing their landscape uh, for as long as we have been able to, and I think that fire was one amazing tool that we had and that used um, to transform the landscape from the prairies of you know North America to the tropics and I think uh, what's so awesome is those pollen cores that reveal corn in the middle of the rainforest right so that in Panama these amazing po uh, pollen cores have shown that you know thousands thousands of years ago there was corn planted and other areas that were just all crops um, and in addition that you're looking at these this shift that's happening because people have stopped managing it so intensively. Um, and I shouldn't say intensively in, in, a, in a negative way, uh, in the sense that they were nurturing, again, that diversity of plants that they needed, but also that benefited ecologically the other, the other um, species around them. And so I think that so much of the world um, continues to be influenced by uh, management but some of it is still being done sustainably and some of it is still being done in a way that nurtures biodiversity and I find that awesome. Um, in Costa Rica part of the reason why I love the culture and identify with the culture is because a big fragment of it recognizes the need to manage the land sustainably. Um, they are all about harnessing renewable energy, they're all about minimizing environmental impact and I shouldn't say all about, but you know, a lot of them are about that. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's uh, something that has been part of that Central American and South American culture for a very long time um, until Bolsonaro got in there. But still, that's another whole other story. I think that th there's, and, I sh and of, of course, a lot of that exploitation predates him. But I think that there's a big aspect of the Amazon that, um, that has I mean, the cultures there are so, so highly sophisticated and so highly developed. And I think that it's beautiful to think that they've survived there for so long, um, just knowing how to get what they need in terms of medicine and food and shelter from the land. And of course, they're going to impact the land. And of course, they're going to 
have that influence over what plants are there and what plants are not there. And that's part of being a species. There was this older biology that was just about studying and categorizing and, you know, uh, documenting relationships and what have you, sort of traditional science. And then there's something else that I think that you're doing and it sounds to me like restoration has been an aspect of your maturation as a scientist, like it was there from at least since you went to SUNY. Um, and do you think, you know, I'm interested in what you're passing on to your students and where you think they're going and do you see your students taking that kernel of human involvement and and bringing that in the Northeast in a way that maybe could have been informed by some of what you either learned through sweetgrass or through your uh, travel in Costa Rica? Like, what do you see as a trajectory for a young person who has maybe been in the Shevitz lab <laughs> and, is, and is reconciling all these different ideas about what biology or ecology could be? I And make pray. it good, because this is my closer. Oh, my <laughs> I pray that I instill the um, the idea that it is our responsibility to leave the world a better place. And a lot of that has to happen through restoration. We've had such a tremendous impact on our environment, and I think that providing them not only with the tools of how to restore an environment, but also the idea that it's possible and the knowledge to do so, I think is huge. And um, in such, we live in the most densely populated state in or that's the populated part of the most densely populated state yeah. in our country. And inevitably, we have to do restoration here. Um, again, to connect us to the environment, but also uh, to give whatever is left here a fighting chance to continue to survive. But a lot of my training as a restoration ecologist happened in the University of Washington. So I did my PhD with the, it was the Center for Urban Horticulture's uh, Ecological Restoration Program. and. Um, I really learned from the best. Like I learned from Kern Ewing and Sarah Reichardt and um, Peter Dunwoody, people who really showed me the importance of restoration and the power that you could have. And I think education is the best way to do that um, because it's it's a positive thing to be able to pass on the idea that um, just uh, just enjoying nature is not enough. Uh, you need to do something to help um, help it recover from human impact and ultimately some of our restorations are going to end up with invasive species again and ultimately some will fail but if we don't yeah. try we're not going to have much of diversity to rely on and so I think that there's a lot of power in teaching and I found that my voice is strongest by having our students learn through experience um, the most beautiful parts of nature and also some of the most damaged parts so that they could understand how to help it recover. Well, thanks for bringing your strong voice to the podcast today. Well, really appreciate you, you spending this time honor. with us. Thank and you for having me. look forward me. to talking more in the future. Yeah, Thanks definitely. so much for your time. Thank you, Jared.